Well, good afternoon, everyone. And uh, <clears throat> it's my absolute privilege to have these sessions with you. And thank you, Pastor Bryce, for introducing me. And um, I know you're all looking forward to the next um, uh, session, but um, we're going to have one hour on Acts, if we may. So, yeah, it's uh, my privilege to be with you and to share with you a series on Acts. And we are going to look at this for a number of reasons. This isn't a sermon I'm going to share with you. It's a seminar. Uh, And we're looking at Acts because whenever we read Scripture, we are blessed. So we're just going to spend time focusing on one book and to dig a little deeper and see what we can get out of it. Um, There's a number of reasons I want to read Acts with you. Um, We need to know about Acts because it gives us a model of early Christianity. It tells us what early Christianity was like as it grew and as it increased in its diversity. And we as a global church, as we spread and grow, we are facing the same issues that the early church faced. So, there are a number of reasons I want us to go through Acts. Uh, Ella White, Sister White, she says this in Gospel Workers, page 313. She says, the subjects that Jesus regarded as essential are the subjects that we are to urge home today. And simply, she is stating that our goal as Adventists is to preach the same truths that Jesus preached. Now, how do we know what those truths are when Jesus never wrote a book? He never got recorded for camp meeting. Yes, he never produced a DVD series, nothing like that. So, how do we actually know what Jesus regarded as essential? Well, the way we find out is by turning to our New Testament where we have his early followers and their accounts of what he said and what he did. And so, this is where I would suggest to you that we as an Adventist movement are a restorationist movement where we're going back to Jesus to rediscover and to recover some of the truths that he shared. That is our goal as Adventists, to lift up Jesus and to lift up his deeds and his words. Now, as you heard from my uh, little um, uh, biography there shared by Pastor Bryce, yes, and as you figured, uh, my accent is not from California, yes, <clears throat> although I do know how to say the word whatever, but not quite so well. So, um, you, you've picked up that actually I'm not um, a citizen of the U.S., although we're actually going through our green card application, and I shall be thrilled when that comes through. But um, back in the U.K., we are maybe a little further down the road than we are here in the States, the road to secular nirvana, although it's not turning out to be quite the nirvana that we had anticipated. And um, back in the UK, and I think it's exactly the same here, we are facing a secular narrative which is deconstructing Christianity. And this is one of the reasons why I want to share Acts with you this week, is to provide you an alternative to the secular narrative of Christianity. Acts, I would suggest, is within the New Testament, as we move into a secular age, and let's pray that the Lord can pull us back out of that, is maybe one of the most important texts in the New Testament for us to study. And here is the rationale for this assertion that I've just shared with you. So, 
Normally, when we read the New Testament, we just open it up and we read it as a collection of books. And we wonder, well, why have we got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? And then we've got uh, Acts and Romans follow on, and then that's how I was taught to remember them. And then we've got First and Second Corinthians, and then we've got a couple of those Pauline books which we can never work out the order, Galatians and Philippines and Colossians. They're always muddled up each time you look at them, and it's always hard to work out which order they're in. And then we've got things like First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy. Uh, and the question is, is why have we got them in this order? Uh, it seems a bit random to, uh, to, to me. Um, why is 1 Corinthians before 2 Corinthians? And maybe one answer is, is that the longer ones come first. So 1 Corinthians is longer than 2 Corinthians. 1 Timothy is longer than 2 Timothy. 1 Thessalonians is uh, longer than 2 Thessalonians. Okay, maybe that's a reason. Matthew is longer than Mark. It comes before him. Once, uh, once the early church had got Matthew, well, we've got everything in Mark in there. We can just plow along with Matthew. So, we often just open our, our New Testament and give very little thought for how it has been put together. I would suggest to you one way of reading it is to step back and to read it in terms of the sequence in which it was written. Now, we can do this with Paul's letters maybe better than we can with the rest of the New Testament. Paul gives us many, many indications as to when he was writing, for whom he was writing, and we can reconstruct the life of Paul almost better than anyone else in, in antiquity. We have a huge amount of things that he both wrote and also testimonies about him from other people. So, we can do that with Paul's letters, written around about the 50s to the 60s, maybe mid-60s, with the Gospels. The honest truth is, is that we guess when they were written. Yeah, most scholars think they were written around about the 60s and 70s, but many of those assumptions behind that uh, are actually sort of assumptions which we as Christians wouldn't hold. So, it's hard to date these, but then we've got other books like John and Revelation, Hebrews, where when we read these, we find that the churches are very mature. Uh, Ephesus in Revelation has lost its first love. This is a mature church, and we know that uh, books like this are written later, maybe in the 70s, 80s. And so, we can reconstruct the order of the New Testament in how they were written, and that helps us to see how we as Adventists believe in the idea of progressive, revealed truth. We can see that God was revealing through His Holy Spirit, He was revealing truths to the early Christian community, and this is what we have in our New Testament. So, it's a slightly different way of reading the New Testament. Now, what secular critics do, they come along and they say, your New Testament, you read it at face value, Ah, but how naive. There's actually another way, a backstory, that actually tells us what the New Testament, how it actually came into being. And this is a deeply destructive narrative that's being pushed if you are a person of faith. 
Uh, it goes something like this. This is the secular narrative. Uh, who was Jesus? Well, we would read the Gospels and say, that gives you a good idea of who Jesus was. The secular narrative would be something like this. Jesus was either just a rabbi or a preacher, maybe a prophet, who walked around the dusty uh, uh, roads of, um, of Judea, uh, preaching maybe social liberalism, uh, economic reform, and he was just a man, nothing else. That would be the secular answer to the question, who was Jesus? Uh, if we look at another question, well, what caused his death? We know our answer as believers. He gave His life for us. If you're a secular person who doesn't believe that, the answer would be, well, maybe Jesus came along and annoyed the, the, the authorities in some way. Uh, he, he pushed the wrong buttons. Yeah, he, he was a threat to their power base, and as a result, they took Him out. He was a political threat. He was a social campaigner of whatever hue you want to paint him. What about the question about his resurrection? Well, we proclaim the great deeds of the Lord and one of, uh, of Yahweh, and one of these is that he has raised Jesus, his son. That would be the Christian response. The secular response would be Jesus died, and that was it. And then one day his followers gathered together, maybe to share their photo albums and reminisce, and maybe they had eaten something that, that day that didn't quite agree with them, or they were smoking stuff which they shouldn't have been smoking, whatever it was. They were going through this process, and suddenly they imagined that the Lord was with them, and they saw him in vision. That's the secular explanation of Christianity. No physical resurrection of Jesus. Rather, it was all in the imagination of the early disciples. Well, then one final question, how did he become a god if he was just a prophet or a rabbi? Well, the guilty person for that is Paul. Paul, who is used to mixing with pagans, he's picked up some pagan ideas, and if you study Greek and Roman sources, you'll know that they believe that great men, usually men, sometimes women, when they died, they would become gods. Julius Caesar, when he died at his funeral, they saw a shooting star, and they came to the conclusion that he had become a god. Well, Paul, maybe he had been uh, exposed himself a little too much, to his uh, Greek neighbors and his Roman neighbors. He is the one, naughty little boy Paul, who brings these outside ideas into Christianity and turns Jesus the prophet into Jesus the God. That is the secular explanation of Christianity. And they take that narrative that I've just explained, and they read the whole of the rest of the New Testament. You no longer take it at face value, but we have a secular backstory that really gives us the true origins of Christianity. That's the narrative that is out there in the world today, in our Western world, which is really uh, the dominant narrative trying to deconstruct traditional Christian origins. I would suggest to you this afternoon that we have an alternative, and that within the New Testament, we have an alternative to that secular backstory of early Christianity. And where do we get that? We find it in Acts. Acts provides us with a 
backstory against which we can read the rest of the New Testament. And as we go through our sessions together, I am going to go through Acts with you and show how it makes sense of what we see in the rest of the New Testament. This is a faith-affirming exercise. It tells us that God's Word is not little bits, but rather it's a coherent whole. This is my goal, to affirm your faith and to provide you with the answers that you need as we meet with our secular friends and neighbors, our work colleagues, so that we can understand where they're coming from, but we also have the answers to defend our faith. That is my goal this week. So, reading Acts as the backstory to Christianity. So, this afternoon, I'm going to be looking at two things. I've told you why we're doing Acts. I think it's a very, very important book for understanding the rest of the New Testament, but also it provides us with great insight as to how early Christians lived and what they thought. Uh, It gives us a model for how to handle diversity as we as a, a global church increasingly become diverse. Um, And it gives us answers that we can use to defend our faith. So, let us um, start by looking at the genre of Acts. And we're looking at the genre, really introductory issues regarding uh, Acts this afternoon. We're going to look at the genre and then the plot. And then we will close by asking, so what? What does this narrative mean for us today? So, what is the genre of Acts? And what do I mean by genre? Genre just means what type of literature is Acts. If you were to go into an ancient bookshop, and they did have them, believe it or not, there were people who liked reading books in the ancient world. You went into an ancient bookshop, and you were to ask the the person at the checkout desk, where can I find the book of Acts? Which shelves would I look? Where would they point you to? Certainly not to the horror not section, not to the science fiction section. Would it be the biography section? Would it be the history section? Where would they point you to if you were to ask, where is Acts in your bookshop? With what other forms of literature would it be associated? Now, why is that important? What's the benefit of asking this question? The importance of this is is that whenever you write with a particular genre, your readership knows why they are choosing that genre. They know what the purpose of the author is if they can work out what type of literature it is. So, if we can ask what type of literature Acts is, we can sort of get closer to Luke's intention for his works. So, the genre of Acts. Now, Luke, and this is somewhat a surprising fact, Uh, if I were to ask you which New Testament author wrote the most material in the New Testament, what would be your answer? Most people would probably say, Paul. Paul. I mean, he wrote all these letters, yes? But actually, if you count up word for word who wrote the most in the New Testament, it wasn't Paul, it was actually Luke. He wrote more than any other author in the New Testament. He wrote the Gospel of Luke, part one, and then Acts. And here we have to really 
go back to Acts. If we want to know what genre Acts is, we need to back up and say, well, maybe what genre is his gospel? Because it's a part A, part B. Luke acts. Uh, when we look in our Bibles, we've got the Gospel of John in between. But in, um, in the ancient world, when Luke wrote his material, most likely they would have been together, maybe in two scrolls. So, what is the Gospel of Acts? Well, to answer this, we, um, we firstly can consider some of the suggestions that have been at, proposed. Uh, we read Acts maybe as an evangelistic manual. When we read Acts, does it talk about evangelism? Yes, it does. But is that its purpose? We have these wonderful stories of, of fast, rapid church growth, and many read Acts and think, hey, if we can work out what they did back then, and we can imitate them, then we will achieve similar growth rates today. Many have read Acts in those terms. The problem with this is that that occurs at the beginning of Acts, but the same guys at the beginning of Acts, when they go to other situations and preach, they get the door slammed in their face. You read Paul, and he goes to one town, he preaches a good sermon, and he gets all these baptisms. He goes to another town in another place, another region, preaches maybe the same sermon, nothing. Hmm. So, maybe evangelism and success the relationship between the two of them are a little more complex as we read on through Acts. It's not simply a plug-and-play. You read it in Acts, you copy it, and you get instant church growth. Maybe not. What about apologetic value? He's writing this in order to convince people in order to accept the Christian faith. Have you noticed when you read Acts that the Romans are always nice characters? We've got Cornelius, a godly centurion. We've got Sergius Paulus, a, a, a Roman ruler who listens to Paul and accepts the truth. We've got a centurion who steps in and saves Paul. It's almost as if every Roman you read in Acts is a little saint already. Now, uh, <clears throat> maybe they are like Englishmen and all nice, or at least all nice to your face. Yes, maybe they are. But I suspect that if you scratch below the surface, you will find that there were the odd Roman here and there who wasn't so nice. So, what Paul is doing, he is giving us a rather tinted perspective of what the Romans were like. So, maybe he is deliberately being positive and saying, yes, the Romans, they are good chaps. Yeah, we've got nothing to fear from us. You've got nothing to fear if you're a Roman. Uh, you can read us and be blessed. Maybe it is apologetic. The problem then is, is that uh, apologetic literature in the ancient world was mostly read by insiders, not outsiders. Generally, you don't convince people by handing them a book. It's not how conversions normally work. Some have argued that, Paul, that Acts is a pro-Pauline polemic. The first half of Acts is Peter. This is a simplification. The second half is Paul. And this argument is, well, when we read... Acts is really trying to show that Paul and Peter are two equals, 
and that we shouldn't favor one over the other. Okay, I can accept that that's there in the text, but the story is more than just Peter and more than just Paul. So, that gives us uh, a little bit of help, but it doesn't give us the full picture. And then finally, we can read it as history, as a historical record. And for sure, it gives us history. But the problem is, is that it gives us a history just of one or two areas. It tells us about Jerusalem, tells us about Antioch, about Asia Minor, about Rome, but it doesn't tell us about North Africa, doesn't tell us about Egypt, it doesn't tell us about, let's say, uh, uh, Babylonia, yes, or Parthia, as it was known in New Testament uh, times. So, it is a very selective record. I would suggest to you that there's an element of truth in all of these, but that Acts is a little more than each of them. Is that, yes, we can read it as an evangelistic manual, but we need to be careful how we use it. It has an apologetic function. There is definitely, Paul is as good as Peter type argument, and then it is giving us history. So, we can read Acts as all of these. As I mentioned, Acts is part one of two books. We have Luke and then Acts. Let me back up and move back to the Gospel of Luke and ask, what genre is Luke? And uh, this is really quite interesting because once you've worked out the genre of the Gospel, you know what its purpose is. This is Richard Burridge. He's the Dean of King's College London and Professor of Biblical Interpretation. His life story is what every young PhD student wants to happen in their lives. He was a chemistry teacher for many, many years, and then he went to the University of Nottingham and he wrote his PhD. His PhD has been published in a book, and this is the book. The title is, What Are the Gospels? And he wrote this, and essentially he changed the whole field of gospel studies with this book. That's the dream of every student, to write a book that will change how scholarship thinks. Most of us never achieve that. What he did in this book, he changed a dominant way of thinking of reading the gospels, where the gospels, thanks to German higher critical scholarship, had read them as uh, literature which literally had fallen out from the sky where we have no idea what type of literature it is. We don't find it in Greek or Roman sources. This was what we picked up from German scholarship. He came along and he says, no, 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 no. When I read the Gospels, and he's doing all four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and I compare them with a particular type of ancient literature, this is what I find. So, he compared them with a whole series of lives. And uh, what he did, he went through, and these are what we would call today biographies. And he, I mean, these are just a selection here that you've got, Xenophon, uh, Satyrus, Nepos, Philo, Tacitus, Plutarch, Suetonius, and they're writing lives of great characters. And what he did, he went through this body of literature, and he demonstrated that when you read this literature, and this is not rocket science, yes, you're not going to fall off your chair when I tell you this, 
But when he went through this literature, he found that the subject, the person who was doing the verbs, he went through all the verbs in these books and found that there was usually one person who did the majority of the actions. Therefore, we can conclude that these books are predominantly about one person. Whoa. And then he did the same thing for the Gospels, and he showed that the Gospels are, would you believe it, about one person. Now, who is that? Jesus, as we know. And so, he thought, right, okay. So, really, the Gospels as we read them are Gospels where they're not about two or three individuals. They're not about, like, rabbinic literature, how to study Torah stories. Rather, they are what we would call biographies in the ancient world, bioi, and they've got a very, very similar uh, uh, <coughs> approach to their subject matter. Here would be an example of Suetonius's life of, uh, let's see, the god Augustus. He was the Roman emperor when Jesus was born. And just have a look at the type of subjects that we get in his life of Augustus. We've got his ancestry and family, his birth, all his military accomplishments, how he ruled the empire, his personal and family matters, although I'm sure you don't get the whole truth because this guy had a rather... Uh, uh, an early life which you'd rather forget if you were a politician, and then how he died and all the signs at the end of his life. Compare that with Luke, and you've got the percentages you can see. You've got a little bit at the beginning, a little bit at the end, but really we're concentrating on his life. This is what we've got in the Gospels. And here we have what we've got in Luke. Very, very similar. Very similar. And so Richard Burridge, he argued uh, that the gospel of Luke, as we read it, you go into the ancient bookshop, and they're going to say, go to the biography section. And you go to the biography section, and you notice you've got some that are longer than others. And uh, Richard Burridge, he went through, and he worked out how many words are in, each, or, uh, in these. He found that you've got some short ones, 3,500 words. You've got some longer ones, 32,000 words. The Gospels are almost bang in the middle, roughly the length of an ancient scroll. So, there we have the Gospels, and he has really convinced Gospel scholarship that the four Gospels, including our dear Luke, are really Greco-Roman biographies, or they're within that, that, that category, general category, but they're told with a heavy Jewish accent. Lots of Jewish theology, but in essence, they are Greco-Roman biographies. Well, you ask, well, so what? Why are you telling me this stuff? Yeah, what's the payoff for knowing this? And here is the payoff. Why did people write this stuff in the ancient world? These days, there is, in our popular climate, the idea that to live a good life, you have to discover who you are, okay? Who you are, you find it out for yourself. And if you want to live a good life, you live true to who you are. In the ancient world, people weren't so naive. They understood that if you really want to do well in life, find a good role model. Paul says this, Imitate who? Imitate me as I imitate Christ. This is completely in line with the ancient 
uh, process of education. You went to school not just to learn stuff, but you went to school in order to find good role models so that you could live a good life, that you could be a good person. Imitation was how education worked in the ancient world. You learnt by memory the words of the great and the good. You learnt how they acted in different situations, and you modelled that in your own life. So when Luke and the other gospel writers are writing biographies, what are they doing? They're not just giving you historical details about the life of Jesus. They are presenting you with a text saying, here is someone who we believe offers you a wonderful life that you need to imitate, and you need to learn His words. You need to memorize His actions, and you need every moment of every day, because that's how education worked in the ancient world. The idea was that every act you did was intentionally guided by, some, by the pattern of someone else, is that you are going to be guided through the words and deeds of Jesus in everything that you say and do. That's the purpose of a gospel, to provide a life to imitate. Well, let's move on. We come to Luke 1, and now we're moving to a second nuance I would suggest with Acts. Luke starts, if you've got your Bibles, read this along with me. It is a very unusual way to open your gospel. And we find this in Luke 1, we call it the preface yeah, I bet you've probably never, ever heard a sermon on this, uh, but uh, there's always a first. Let me read this in your hearing, Luke 1, verses 1 to 4. Since many have undertaken to set down an orderly account of the events that have been filled among us, fulfilled among us, just as they were handed on to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the Word, I too decided after investigating everything carefully from the very first to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the truth concerning the things about which you have been instructed. There you have the opening to the Gospel of Luke. Now, if you were to read this in Greek, you have some real tongue twisters, okay? You've got to, and I'm not going to embarrass myself or you, but I just want you to have a look at the words, some of these words. Look at this word, okay? Sixteen letters in it. That's so long, it could be a Welsh word, yeah? It's so long. We've got this word. Look at how long that word is. Uh, another long, long word. We've got words in these four verses you will never find anywhere else in the New Testament, it is like opening up a scientific book, and you're reading English, and you scratch your head, and you think, wow, did I really go to school and learn English? And you've got all this technical jargon. Luke is hitting you between the eyes with piles and piles of technical jargon. That's how he starts his gospel. The beginnings and endings to ancient books, well, as with modern books, are always the most important they tell you what's going on. So, there we have his preface, and I just want to share with you one idea, and it's an idea which impacted me personally. The reason is, is because it was by one of my PhD supervisors at Sheffield. It was by Professor Loveday Alexander. You can see her there. She is uh, a wonderful lady, a world expert in acts, 
uh, before she even went to university. I mean, I just, I, I'm jealous of her. She had the type of education almost nobody gets now. She got it back in the 1960s. So by, by the time she even went to university and she went to, uh, I think it was either Oxford or Cambridge, she already could read fluently Greek and Latin before she even went to university. I mean, what a foundation. So she did her PhD on those four wor verses in Acts. And what she did, she went through uh, the, 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 uh, the library at her university and she took down off the shelves all these ancient books by the Greeks and Romans, and she compared the beginnings of those works. Now that's, uh, as she said, uh, she uh, gave this in a, pre uh, a seminar, she said, it really was very easy because all I had to do was to read the first couple of lines of each work and compare them with Luke. And this is what she found. She found that when you read these ancient works, and I'm going to tell you what types of works in a minute, but I'm going to hold you in a degree of artificial suspense. When she re read a certain type of Greek literature, this is what she found. They would have something like the author's decision to write. I have decided. I think it is necessary better. I have written. I've decided to write for you. You would get the subject and contents usually stated after the decision. I've just decided to write about whatever, uh, and then we've got some variants. And lo and behold, this is what we have in Luke 1, 1 to 4. We've got the decision to write. I have decided. We've got the subject uh, contents here. Uh, let's see, what is it? where are we? Uh, here we have it. Everything that was handed on. She found in these works that you will get a dedication to the person who would pay for the work. It was very expensive to write in the ancient world. Almost nobody could afford just to write a work themselves. Imagine you've got to go and kill all those animals and turn them into, into uh, cloth, uh, into um, pergamum, and uh, then um, write it out, parchment. Um, so we'd get the dedication to the person who was paying for it. This is what we find in Acts. We have down here that I have written an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Theophilus just means God-lover. I've written this for you. And then she found in this certain genre that we would also get other writers who had written on the subject. Since such and such has written on the subject and done such, and go such a good job, I, too, am also going to write on this subject. And this is what we get in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Since many others, many have undertaken to set down an orderly account, and you can see how it flows. And then finally, we've got the author's qualifications. And maybe it would be the written sources they had used, or the personal experience, or their use of tradition. And this is what we get here. I've decided, after investigating everything carefully from the very first, to write an orderly account. So, biographies, yes. But when you go into the bookshop, there's biographies, but now there's a narrower section in the biography section. And she, uh, Professor Loveday Alexander, is saying, we need to go to this narrow section and see what we've got there. And this is what she found is that the top quality literature in the ancient world, 
all started with those elements. It was the literature for university-level education. Wow. Now, that, I mean, we've had a complete turnaround from how we read the Gospels, from the historical critics coming along and saying, you know, this is lower class, uh, poor quality literature. And here, Acts, Luke is writing his way, and he's signaling to his authors, uh, to his readers, that I am writing to you top quality tested literature. You can trust what I am sharing. That's what he's trying to communicate. Now, uh, these, this, this genre, subgenre, had a specific use. It was for use in high levels of education. So, what is Luke saying? He's saying, Theophilus, you've learned so much from these other texts, but now I want you to deepen your faith. I'm writing something that you can absolutely trust. We have a pulse within Christianity, early Christianity, which says that what you learn when you first become a Christian is the basics, but keep going. Deepen your faith. Don't become satisfied with what you have. Start moving forward in your research, in your education, in, the, in your, your, your knowledge of Scripture. Move to a higher level. This is what Luke is really saying by choosing this genre. So, there we have the genre. It is, uh, he's giving us lives, people who we can imitate. But he's doing it at a high level where he's saying, you know, <laughs> intelligentsia, you can trust the stuff I am writing. It's written to a high quality. Let's move on to the plot of Acts. By plot, we simply mean the storyline. And in 20 minutes, I'm going to try and just give you an overview of the main punchline as to what Acts is about. And then tomorrow and subsequent days, we will be expounding this. So, Luke finishes with Jesus telling his disciples, go to Jerusalem and wait, and the Holy Spirit will come to you. And this is what we find in Acts. Before Jesus is taken up in the clouds, he tells his disciples, uh, stay in Jerusalem, do not leave, chapter 1, verse 4, but to wait there for the promise of the Father. What is the promise? It's the coming of the Holy Spirit. And then we have this verse, and the verse is verse 8, and this is what we read. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. This is the story of Acts. It is the movement of the Holy Spirit through His witnesses from Jerusalem to Judea, to the surrounding area, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth. It's a programmatic statement, and we start off in the first two chapters with this wonderful story of Pentecost. Have you ever wondered what that story is about? Let me briefly explain to you what Pentecost is all about. Luke tells us that Jesus died at Passover, and then in Acts we have Pentecost. Pentecost, the word, means 50, just pente, we get five, uh, Pentecost is 
50 days later, after Passover, we have Pentecost. And you know the story how the early believers were there praying, and the Holy Spirit came upon them in chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. And we read there in verse 4 that they had divided tongues as of fire, how they appeared above them, little tongues, they literally sat, hovered on each of them. And then with these little tongues of fire, they are told, they spread out. It communicates this Holy Spirit to the people who listen to them as they preach. What is this story all about? Well, very simply, this is an Old Testament story replayed. Exodus tells us about the Passover, liberation from Egypt, liberation from slavery. And then 50 days after Passover, we get the Festival of Weeks. In Greek, we call it Passover, the 50th, 50 days after Passover. And what is the purpose of this festival? It is to commemorate the time when Moses went upon Mount Sinai and was given the law. And you'll remember in the, in the story of the Exodus how God was communicating through the law, but He was also guiding them directly through His Holy Spirit. And this is what we find, a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. So, there we have a little intimation and in Exodus, they are moving towards the promised land. And this is the story of Acts. It's a replay. <coughs> in Acts, 3,000 are baptized when Peter preaches at Pentecost. It's a reminder of the original Exodus story, how when the law was given, sad to say, there was an apostasy uh, with Aaron making a golden calf 3,000 died on that day, but with Acts, this is a new beginning for Israel. It is a new Pentecost, and now God is, through His Holy Spirit, He's going to bring them back to what they should have been, and Israel now is going to take His presence around the world. So, this is the story of Acts. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem to all Judea, and to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And this is how we see the rest of Acts unfold. We get chapters in Judea and Samaria, and then we move to the ends of the earth. And Luke, he had a sense of humor, because the end of the earth is Paul arriving in Rome. This is like calling New York the Sticks. It's the end of the earth. That is Paul's, Luke's sense of humor. But really what this is, this is a narrative of God's, if I can just bag up, it's a narrative of God's presence moving from Jerusalem to Antioch, to, uh, down to Ethiopia, Samaria, over to Asia Minor, over to Macedonia, and then finally washing up on those, the shores of the Tiber in Jerusalem. It's a conquest narrative. It's God's presence moving through. It's the story of Peter and Paul, but there's another story which is being told, and I'm finishing with this. Throughout Acts, we get these little notes, and they are this, that God's Word 
increased. God's Word spread, and God's Word grew, and the community were strengthened. This is God filling His world with His presence and preparing His world not just to make heaven on earth, but to prepare His world for His return, to prepare the world for when the King of glory returns. This is the plot of Acts. It's a story of conquest. It's a story of hope. It's a positive narrative. It's a story of growth. It's telling us that the harvest is ready, and go forth. Yes, it may be difficult, but go forth, because this is not just a story about Peter, not just a story about Paul, but it's the story of God working, and He is the main character through His Word and through His Spirit. And so, tomorrow, we will go through Acts in a little more detail. We've just had an introduction today as to what type of literature it is, how we are to imitate the people that we read in it, how we are to understand that we can trust what we are reading, and that this, as we go through our time together, will give us answers that we can use to defend our faith. This is my prayer, that we will not just know God's Word in more detail, but my prayer is, is that the Holy Spirit, who drove the story of Acts, who spread His presence through the Roman Empire, will spread His presence into our hearts, into our minds, into our words, into our deeds, and that He will colonize us to start with. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.